back to the econ for You podcast series. I'm your host, Sanjana, and the aim of my podcast is to interview professionals of different industries in order to find out how we can develop our economy for the better. Be sure to follow at EFY Podcasts on both Instagram and Twitter for future updates. In today's episode, I'm excited to introduce Matt Stoller, author, former policymaker in Congress, and director of research at the Economics Liberties Project. Matt's work is centred on monopoly power and why this goes against democracy and in fact suppresses the growth of wealth in our economy. The recent events regarding the pandemic have made this problem stand out even further, as I hope to discuss today. So Matt, could you begin by introducing yourself and what you research as well as your role in the Economic Liberties Think Tank? Yeah, so I have a I wrote a book called Goliath, The Hundred Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy, which is a history centered in America, but it's a global story about the politics of commerce. And uh, so what I do is I study our uh, market structures, mostly in the U.S., but, you know, there there are global markets and there are markets in every country. And uh, what I do at the uh, Economic Liberties Project is we try to talk to policymakers about how to think about the relationship between justice and uh, and market structure and commerce and and market structure and right now we're in a moment of um, moment of monopoly a moment of monopolies we have a crisis because really since the as I go into in my book in the late seventies we have structured a public policy framework in the u s but then also abroad uh, to enable the roll-up of power in virtually every market, not just search engines and social networks, which we know of through Google and Facebook, but also, uh, but also things that you wouldn't necessarily think about, like uh, like peanut butter or um, uh, port- portable toilets. Uh, you know, in the U.S., it's cheerleading. There's all sorts of monopolies in sports, ultimate fighting championship. Like, so it's it's, and all of these are result- pharmaceuticals, of course agriculture, all of these are a result of the choice that policymakers and the public have made to stop enforcing traditional anti-monopoly rules that are hundreds of years, of years old in the U.S. and largely in Europe. Uh, they are they're kind of a post-World War II phenomenon, although in England, the you know, anti-monopoly stuff goes back to the 1600s. Yeah. So which sector would you say has been most badly hit by the existence of monopolies? I think the media sector is probably the worst right now. Uh, what you saw in the 80s and 90s was the roll-up of power in the form of media conglomerates. I think you know them. A lot of the newspapers in England are controlled by uh, by News Corp or, or a couple of other media barons. Mm. Uh, that's true in the United States. It's, it's sort of a, we, we unwound a lot of our, uh, our, our media regulation rules. But what has started happening in the 90s when you when – uh, the internet uh, sort of emerged in, in a, as a mainstream medium is that the monopolization in the telecom world and monopolization in the media world combined to form Google and Facebook and Amazon somewhat, who are you know these kind of super conglomerates with a lot of monopoly power over how information and news flows. And so you see layoffs in the U.S. and all over the world, including in England, of journalists and really an elimination of news gathering, which is the lifeblood of, of any sort of healthy society. Of course, it's the lifeblood of democracy, but it, it inhibits our ability to communicate with, an, with one another and to even really think clearly. So that's, I think, the most concentrated sector. They're also the companies that are the most valuable in the world. 
Uh, and it's also the most dangerous set of monopolies. It's not the only ones, but those are the most concentrated and dangerous ones. Okay, yeah. Um, so I was thinking about Joseph Schumpeter when his argument was that monopolies are temporary and because of creative destruction um, and competition, they will eventually be replaced. And a common example is Netflix, which um, through its innovation overcame monopolies such as Blockbuster. So what's your opinion on this theory? And do you think, as you mentioned, firms such as Amazon and Facebook, do you think they will eventually be replaced? Or do you think this is a problem that will last quite far into the future? And you think that creative destruction is not a solution? Yeah, I, I think Schumpeter's framework is wrong. Uh, Schumpeter believed that competition within a market was less important than competition over a market. So he didn't. He thought monopolies were good. And uh, you know, if you have control of a market, that doesn't prevent someone else from competing to create an entirely new market, which which you know has has products that make your old market obsolete. Uh, one of the problems with that framework is, first of all, it's not really true. Um, you often don't. You often see, you know, exist people say, "Oh, Microsoft used to have a monopoly in operating systems, and now look, we have these other." You know, they're irrelevant. Microsoft is still a trillion dollar corporation. I mean, they they still have a monopoly in operating systems, and they are extracting revenue that they shouldn't. Just because it's it's not the cool monopoly to think about anymore doesn't actually prove that Schumpeter was correct. So you see monopolization in lots of other places. Like, you know, there are lots of markets where it seems like the product line is you know, old and irrelevant, but that doesn't make it not a monopoly because some people still depend on these much older uh, product lines with spare parts for, you know, for air, old airplanes or whatever. These are, these can be very concentrated markets. And just because, a, uh, you know, just because it's a, the crime will eventually end doesn't mean it's not a crime um, is one way to think about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I, I answered that question, but yeah, I think uh, it, I think it answered my question. So, Obviously, this yeah. has been a problem for quite a long period of time throughout history. So have there been any attempts to suppress monopolies in the past and have they been successful? Yeah, I mean, there have been, you know, anti-monopoly rules go back to Babylonian times. I mean, okay. uh, you know, there are uh, every major society has almost always had rules against usury or rules against um, to regulate markets. Uh, the, the Middle Ages, there were rules against uh, monopolization and speculation. They had weird old English words to, you know, frame it. But, yeah, I mean, there were uh, every society. I mean, this is very, very basic stuff. Even things like, you know, the Jubilee, right, which is an old Hebrew law. That is about um, making sure that our commercial arrangements match with a just society or a society that is stable. So, yeah, I mean, one of the weirdest parts of reading the arguments of the scholars who sort of took down our modern anti-monopoly framework, these are people in the 1970s, is how they just made fun of these very old, um, you know, these old systems that are in every culture. And they're in every culture for a reason, which is every ancient culture, which is that they speak to something fundamental about what happens when you allow greed to go untrammeled. I mean, George Stigler, who's one of these scholars, was just making fun of the idea of usury caps, saying, you know, this is clearly inefficient. And like usury caps have been in every society, you know, they're in the Bible. They are in, you know, so yeah. it's like, it's what, what changed about America, about, about human beings in the 1970s? Like nothing. So 
you look around the world and you see all this fantastic industrial power and all these wonderful technologies. And then you figure, well, why are so people so unhappy, even though we have all of this amazing capacity to live longer than we've you know, ever lived? We have all of this incredible wealth. And it's the, the reason is because we've ignored uh, for about 40 years, we've ignored this, this traditional wisdom in favor of these weirdos we call economists. Surely things like natural monopolies, for example, railways, um, they prevent duplication of resources. So, I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but surely in some cases monopolies could be beneficial. Or are you saying in every case they're not? No, no, I'm not. Look, I mean, when I say monopoly power, I mean, the traditional way when you talk about monopolies as a political term, you're not talking about the state running and controlling some sort of asset on a neutral level. Like, you're not talking about the post office, which is, of course, a monopoly, but it's a a publicly owned utility. uh, you know, so public utility law is one really powerful way to address monopoly. Really, the problem happens when it's un- monopolies are unregulated, and then they can um, they, they can discriminate against different against different customers, and they effectively govern a market. If someone, if they're if you place public authority over a utility, that's one way of of managing that political problem, making sure there's no, non discriminatory terms. Uh, so it's not, you know, when I talk about monopoly power, I'm not really talking about, you know, just w- one entity that controls a market. It's, it's you know, and, and we have to always break things up. It's, it's okay. really just about unregulated, concentrated financial power. Okay, I see. So do you think that we should increase this regulation then? For example, um, could there be more regulation on the ability for mergers and acquisitions to take place? So Facebook and WhatsApp, that acquisition... Surely the government should have done something about that. Do you think there needs to be more regulation to ensure that these firms can't get even bigger than they already are? Yeah, the way I would put it is that we have tremendous amounts of regulation. It's just that that regulation is held in the, you know, by Mark Zuckerberg. So he <laughs> actually set up a Supreme Court. He's trying to set up a global currency. Yeah. He has uh, a lot of speed regulation that goes on. So I don't, you know, he's sort of our global privacy commissioner. So when we talk about regulation, we're, we're really talking about whether that regulation is going to be done by, by public institutions, democratic institutions, or whether it's going to be done by some people in Silicon Valley, right? Or, you know, I guess Spotify has some power now. Yeah. Um, and that, so it's, it's really, a, it's a political argument. And I, I think that, you know, mergers are a really good place that uh, the, the state should step in more aggressively. I know the Competition Markets Authority in England has actually said that they should do that. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, you know, one thing that we often forget, and this is part of, you know, the, the, the origin of the corporation is that it's a, it is a democratic grant of sovereignty to a group of people to organize resources. Mm-hmm. That is what a corporate charter is. So the state saying you can or you can't merge is a perfectly legitimate exercise of power. These companies are in parts, you know, sovereign. They are grants of sovereignty from our nation states. And we should recognize that and take away the benefits we've given them if they abuse it. And they have abused their yeah. their, their power and authority. Yeah. And they do subvert commerce. That's the other thing that's important here. This isn't the ideology that I come from, which is a sort of a producerist ideology, is not an anti-commerce ideology. It's the, the problem that we have right now is that monopolies are subverting commerce. They're preventing people from innovating, from building new things, from buying and selling to others, except on the terms that the monopolist wants. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. So moving on to monopolies during the pandemic. So because the pandemic has provided both a supply side shock and a demand side shock, um, countries such as the US and UK, 
their measure of wealth is based on financial markets and it's based on consumerism whereas so this has meant that they've outsourced things like factories to places like China so as soon as the pandemic hit it meant that these countries didn't have access to PPE, um, whereas China were able to rapidly produce it. So therefore, my question is, how can we shift um, the meth- methods of measuring wealth in countries such as the UK and US in order to better tackle future situations rather than just focusing on financial markets? How can we shift the view away from this? I think that's really it's a really profound question. It's a really important question. And I think you hit upon it when you talked about consumerism. So uh, the traditional anti-monopolism is based on on something like if you really go back and uh, look at the anti-monopoly rules in 1600s onwards, it's based on the labor theory of value. Yeah. So it's based on the idea that people that work and produce things, they should have some say in how that work is done and they should have some say in what they make. It's not necessarily a total say. The other side is consumerism. Consumers should be have some should you know what they mat what they want what we want as consumers matters too. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the problem is that we've gone so far towards consumerism that we no longer think of ourselves as having any sort of role as citizens or in the production process itself. And so, oh, all of our factories go to China, whatever, that's good for consumers. And it's really destructive to communities, and it's also really destructive to our own national security and our own sovereignty and our own social stability. So the key is to move away from our obsession with consumer rights and move back towards some sense that that the producers, the people that make things, the people that design things, build things, grow things, structure ideas, that those are sort of the ones who should be orienting power and not the financiers and the middlemen and the distributors, which is kind of where things are now. So you look at like Amazon or Google or Facebook or Goldman Sachs or any of these uh, corporations that are quite dominant, they're all middlemen. They're all matching someone to someone else. So Goldman, you know, Wall Street, they match um, – I guess it's the city. You guys have your own little corrupt way to do it. Um, but, uh, but, you know, matching savings and investment, a middleman intermediary. And, you know, Amazon matches people in different markets and Google matches different people in different markets. They're not actually underlying producers. They're, they're matching underlying producers with underlying consumers. And, but what they do is they keep those producers powerless. Um, and that's really the problem. Okay. And that and you're right about the financial markets. I mean, mm. I was a little bit early on the pandemic, but in March, you know, nobody noticed that the, there was a pandemic until the stock market started crashing, which exactly. is a crazy way to run a society to just be <laughs> like, it's not a problem unless it hits the stock market. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was thinking about how all these large firms, they've been getting bailouts from the government and surely this is just making things worse. So how do we shift away from this middleman idea that you mentioned? Like what steps are there to shift back to a good market yeah i mean i think that we have to uh change policy i mean i i don't you know yes you've got to have the government um make sure like step in and when they do bailouts through the federal reserve or whoever they're doing them through Mm -hmm. that they condition those bailouts on not acquiring more market power you also have to have enforcers be more aggressive i know that the the CMA was pretty good, or they're kind of, they're actually kind of weak, but they're starting to get stronger. Yeah. And they blocked an attempt to buy uh, Amazon to invest in Deliveroo. Yeah. And then they reversed themselves because they got scared that there's a pandemic. And you have to 
You have to stop being afraid to wield power. And I think what you see all over the world, except in China, is a tremendous fear of that public servants should should you know should wield like a fear of public servants wielding power. And that comes from economists constantly telling them that you don't want to inter- you don't want to disturb the market. You, you know the private you know private entities are are always doing things properly, and any any interruption of what they're doing is dangerous unless everything collapses and then you have to bail them out, right? Mm-hmm. What we need, we need to start. Like we, we need public officials to actually start affirmatively reshaping markets, entering those markets if need be, but to actually start to govern and be willing to make mistakes, be willing to stand down, like you know, Mark Zuckerberg or, or whoever these people are. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's the thing about monopolists is you talk to these CEOs, they're not gods or monsters; they're just like mediocre salesmen, and. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be – we shouldn't have to care what they think, but we do because we've decided that because they happen to luck into a monopoly at the right point in history that they know something we don't. But they don't. They don't know anything we don't. They're just people. So like stop thinking of them as gods and monsters and start looking to your public institutions to govern and start demanding that your political officials actually govern. Okay. Do you think we as consumers can also play a role? So like by boycotting certain companies, so maybe avoiding – ordering stuff on Amazon. I know it sounds difficult, but do you think consumers have any role in in this? No, I actually don't. I don't think that consumer boycotts are useful at all. I think Mm. that consumer boycotts mislead people into thinking that politics isn't where we should make policy. So I'm very much, I mean, if, if a consumer boycott is, the goal of a consumer boycott is to make policy, then, then I'm fine with that. But too often consumer boycotts are seen as ends in themselves. Like, as an example, the uh, Boston Tea Party was the result of a boycott against tea. However, the underlying point wasn't the boycott itself. It was to repeal the Tea Act. So mm. the, the point is, is you have to have a – like the, the point is to work through policy, work through politics. And today the way we think of consumer boycotts is in a very libertarian framework where, oh, we're voting in the marketplace with, with our dollars or, or pounds or euros. And that's just not true. You're just not. If, if the vote is happening in the marketplace, then the person with all the money has all the votes. The yeah. point is to use politics again, use policy again. Okay, I think that's all my questions then. So um, thank you for speaking to our listeners today. Um, obviously, rising monopoly power has become such a great big concern. And I didn't realise how um, how much of an impact it was having until I had this conversation. So thank you. And it's great to see that you're advocating. Um, Thanks a lot. So, yeah. Good luck. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I hope you have enjoyed listening to our guest speaker today. Be sure to follow the Instagram at EFY Podcast and I hope you enjoyed listening to our discussion.